Welcome to DMs of Vancouver. The show where we talk to our awesome friends and amazing guests about how to help you become a better GM for your tabletop games or review games that we've played recently from a GM and a player's perspective. I'm Jesse Boros and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Sean Hagen and my pronouns are also he, him. We're your co-hosts for this podcast and we've got another great episode for you. This episode is recorded and produced on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. Have you ever wanted to create a backstory for a powerful magical relic, but you just weren't sure how to proceed? Never fear, today we're talking about Artifact. Artifact is a game written by Jack Harrison for Mousehole Press. You can find them at mouseholepress.itch.io. It's a journaling game, which I realize now is kind of a first-time thing for us on this show. Mm-hmm. It's a game you play on your own, unless you were like me the first time you played it, where somebody prompted me through it. <laughs> uh, we hope you enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the Grounded Pixie Dice Set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Right, so, Artifact. Um, I think you've got uh, some more information on just... Why don't you lay out what the game is and, like, the overview? Okay, so... Artifact is a, you know, it is an inexpensive game you can find on itch.io. I want to say first off, it's $10 USD, which I think is well worth it uh, for the game. But it's a journaling game where you sit down and follow prompts to create an artifact. Yeah. And uh, I think there's like 10 different kinds of artifacts that you can create. And they go from like weapons and shields to footwear and wizard staffs to automaton. So you could create use this to create a, 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 a robot that has seen many ages or whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah, actually. I mean, I this is one of my favorite things about Artifact is I think that the, the rules of the game lend themselves really well to hacking, so you could easily use it to do other things. But I think mm. even built into the rules here, if you want to play... Uh, like say in your D&D campaign a Warforged you can straight up just make that you use the automaton prompts and do that um, I think also but I think really for any game especially if, especially if you want to play a character that has spanned a long time you could easily adjust these rules to kind of think of important life events and backstory and stuff like that but that's yeah. not the main point of the game so no. We can so, talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. So the the basic way that you play through this is that uh, it's you start by creating uh, by choosing what kind of artifact it is that you want to create. Are you going to be if you're gonna, if you're a weapon? Are you going to be a sword or an axe or something stranger? If you're uh, an article of clothing, what article of clothing and what do you look like and all that stuff? And and once you've chosen, um, you. Uh, the first few prompts are about like how you were created and uh, to draw a picture of yourself. Um, And basically from this point on uh, you are playing the artifact and then you go through uh, three acts um, that are basically it's, it's a a prompt and, or 
you choose a keeper, somebody who has carried you around for a while and, you know, you have some stories to tell about them. And then some, you go to, um, like, I think it's just called time. Like each act has a page just called time that has, I think, six prompts on, on how long you went in between, you know, your first keeper and your second or your second and your third. And uh, what's I found really interesting about this was that uh, the game has a website that you can go to that all it is is a bunch of uh, short uh, music, I guess is the best way to put it, music clips of different lengths, because depending on which, uh, like how long your artifact quote unquote sleeps for, you're supposed to in real time, just close your eyes and wait. So the songs serve as a way to, uh, you know, wait the proper amount of time without having to fiddle with your phone or anything. Yeah, this is um, both maybe my favorite mechanic and the most maligned mechanic in the system, because I think it's really clever uh, and it's really smart. But also, I cannot sit still and listen to instrumental music for five minutes. My brain just doesn't do it. Um, So I, I ended up having trouble with it. But I don't think that makes it a bad mechanic. <laughs> yeah. And like the, I think the longest is like if you, uh, like in this, I think, I can't remember if it's the second or third act. In the first act, you wait from like no time at all, all the way up to, I think a decade is the longest that you can wait during the yeah. first act. And the decade, um, the amount of time you wait in the wait in the real world is just, I think, like a minute or something. And then, <clears throat> excuse me. And then for, uh, in act two or three, the, like the longest amount of time you can wait, I think is like a millennium or something like a thousand years. And that's like four minutes of, uh, of real world waiting. Yes. I'm going to look this up actually. Cause it's, uh, it's a lot. Yeah, you're right. The decade is the longest in the first one. It's for a minute. Then, uh, in the second one, you can wait a millennium, which is four minutes. And then, do you wait in the third one? It's been a little while since I've had a chance to play an epoch where you rest for six minutes. Oh, okay, so there is a longer one. I just didn't use that one. Um, and this—it's funny that this is the, the the section where I also ran into into problems. And this is totally a reading comprehension thing on my part. Um, at least that's what it feels like. Is because uh, on the in Act 1, on the time page, um, underneath all of the time periods that you can choose from, uh, it says, if you have already chosen two keepers from this act, move on to Act 2 uh, to choose your next. Otherwise, choose from the, the those remaining in this act. And for some reason, I don't know why, my brain parsed that as something you've done in act one should have told you to pick another keeper in act one. And if you didn't move on to act two. So I did that for all three acts. So instead of having two keepers in each act, I just have one uh, for my first playthrough, which um, uh, spoiler warning, I ended up writing 9,000 words for this. So only doing one keeper per act was probably a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, this is, a, I think, a big difference between me and you and our DM styles and our writing styles in that, like, you can write a lot and you can focus on writing a lot, and I cannot. <laughs> yeah, I would I would be really curious to do this because, like, part of the reason that I ended up writing so much was that I was doing it at home. Uh, you know, I took a break from, from work during the day and just got into this. And... 
because I didn't have any time constraints, I just kind of went wild and I just wrote a whole lot. But I am curious if like, if I put myself in a time box and I said, I only have an hour to do this entire thing. How would that change how I play the game? Like I would, you know, instead of writing, I would just be making like bullet point notes of like the important stuff. Um, you know, not trying to write a story, just like, here's, you know, the Cole's notes of this artifact's history. Yeah, I mean, I think that is fine. Like, that's more of my approach, right? I, I wrote like a, it's more like I wrote a paragraph for each one or something like that. Right. Um, But like, I think you could do that. I think it is more fun to, to do the more, a bit more detail and get more into it because it is a game, right? Like it, even though... I think in some ways, description-wise, it might sound like it's an exercise. It's, it's it's a game. You're supposed to kind of get into it and lose yourself in it a little bit, I think. Yeah. And, I mean, that isn't to say that you couldn't use this as a GM tool to oh, create backstories for powerful magical artifacts. It's just, depending on how much work you want to be putting in, you have to come at artifact from a different angle. Like if you're coming at it with the, the intention of like, you just want to create one magical item that you're maybe going to place in another game and you want to like really flesh out its backstory, or maybe you're a writer and you just need to figure out the backstory of the magic sword of whatever. Um, but if you're a, a GM who's just looking to like add some flair to a magic item you're going to place in the game, then I would suggest doing more like what Jesse did and doing like short paragraphs or bullet uh, bullet point list and just you know get through it quicker than focusing on the details. Yeah, yeah. Treat it like a tool instead of like a game. At that point, I think yeah. is kind of what it is, right? Like you said, a GMing tool, and you can certainly use it for that. And also, like it has a bit of a fantasy bent, but I think you could easily apply it to a sci-fi game and stuff like that. Oh, for sure. Like, um, I think because we've started playing a campaign of, of Numenera, uh, in my head, it was actually in new, like in the ninth world is where this artifact was. Nice. <laughs> um, which fits really well with Numenera because it's, uh, kind of like a sci-fi fantasy mashup and, this game, uh, at least the prompts and like the time that passes in the game world as you're playing through, um, to me, it lended it, it lends itself well to the like, you know, unknown epochs of history in Numenera in the Ninth World. Yeah. Now, I did the same thing for mine um, because it was just as I was coming up to running the campaign that I now am running. Um, and playing this ended up making the artifact i made a central piece of that campaign like my players have this thing uh i'm not going to talk too much about the details because i don't know if any of my players listen uh, but my, <laughs> my players have this thing and it's going to be i mean unless they throw it away which some parties are wont to do sometimes and there's other things i can do without it but you know this is a central piece of it now and that wasn't the case before I sat down to play the game. <laughs> um, but, you know, I applied it knowing what I know of the history of my world with, you know, magic rising and then falling and then coming again. And also, uh, it making this really helped me establish a history for my setting because I was like, well, who created this? What are these big, powerful beings that made this artifact that survived this long? What are they like? What other factors are around? 
you know, how did magic come and fall and all that stuff? Like, it really helped solidify it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And while personally, for a campaign, I probably wouldn't do this for more than one item because of because I honestly probably just wouldn't enjoy doing it for a bunch personally. Um, I do think it's really great for that if you want to flesh out your world a bit and you want to have a cool magic thing that's a central piece. It's a really useful game for that. Yeah. And also aesthetically it's really it's really good. <laughs> yeah. Um let's take a moment and let's uh like one of the first things that you encounter as you go through the the artifact book is the excuse me, I got a dry throat today. Uh the game concepts and I think it's it's worth uh just going through that to like kind of give people an idea of of what happens and and what kind of things you have to work with. Um so the first thing is that like this is a game about magical items, things with incredible powers. And uh, what I find interesting is that uh, they say like right off the bat, it's like you, the magical item you create is sentient. It uh, it doesn't die, but it can be like tarnished or buried or forgotten or whatever. But it is a sentient thinking thing, um, which I think I internalized a lot more than I realized until after I'd finished the game because after I finished, I realized that um, the artifact that I had created, like it didn't speak very much. It didn't speak at all to its first keeper. And then the second one, it spoke like one word and like by the last act, it was having conversations with its keeper. Um, And I just, it's interesting how that like, just the idea that like it's sentient, but it's a created item. So like how that worked in my brain, I just found it really interesting. Um, the next thing are keepers, which are basically like, these are the people that um, made you or found you or rescued you or whatever it is uh, during the time span that you're writing about as you play through artifacts. So these are people that have carried you around for a while. I really like the first line of keepers. An item cannot act alone. A keeper must seize it. Yeah. Um, the the concepts and a lot of the rules and the text in the game leading up really build to a tone, and I think they are really effective. Yeah. And it's also something that I think... Uh, it, I can't think of any of the examples, but like, you know, when you think of a magical item that is sentient, like so often I think we, the first thing that comes to mind for folks is the idea of like, you know, the evil sword that will take over your mind uh, or, you know, these evil cursed magic items that uh, will make life hell for uh, a character, whether it's in a role-playing game or a book or a movie or whatever. Um, But the idea that like you can have an item that like, because one of the things we're going to come to is like what, helps you define what kind of item you are in terms of i guess personality and style and so like you can have an artifact that is you know good and noble and loyal and it's still sentient and it talks to its owners uh and it doesn't you know trying to buck that idea that talking magical items tend to be bad you know just a, a brief diversion here I find it really interesting that you keep on saying talking because mine doesn't really. <laughs> the one I the one I made the last time, um, it, it is going to in the campaign communicate with my players, but like a lot of its story was 
being aware and going through this stuff, but also not really being uh, an actor in the greater thing other than being a tool. Um, it was kind of thinking on it now. It's kind of a really interesting to me balance of being an item that on its own can't really do anything, but also being alive and aware of what's happening. Yeah. And like, that's a totally valid way to to play it because like I've read plenty of uh, like source books and fantasy books and even science fiction books in some places that talk about, you know, an item, you know, in science fiction, it's usually like a computer or program or something that's just been left along for so long that it eventually gains sentience. And in fantasy, you have this idea of, of items that accrue power and have been around for so long that eventually like they just become sentient. And yeah, that's a really interesting way that you can play this. And I think that I might try to do that next time is have, you know, create an item that is like you said, aware, but doesn't talk um, because I'm curious what I would come up with in that situation. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the game concepts, there's one last one and that's time and rest, which we've already talked a bit about, but yeah, it's the time kind of between keepers mm-hmm. and with keepers, but like the, while both are important, uh, the time alone is kind of as much of the story as anything else. Yeah. Um, and there's actually two more things on the, on the next page. Um, the, the next, the, the first one is traits, which are what I was obliquely referring to when I was talking about like things about you, the artifact. And they're, these are just characteristics that describe a magical item. They can be physical, magical, uh, a facet of the personality that's developing or anything. And uh, the thing that I like is that it specifically says that you don't have to use a precise definition. Um, and in my mind, it's one of those like I kind of wish that they had said vague is better because having something that's a little bit more vague leaves you with more options and opportunities on how you want to use that definition. Um, But at the same time, you know, sometimes you can't create something great without some restrictions. So I guess it's up to how you want to use the traits. Oh yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned, it's not funny. Of course, of course we both found the same part of it good and interesting right because we do have a lot of similarities with rules we like rules that allow us to be open-ended or to change it to our own effect right Mm -hmm. i literally wrote i really appreciate this section (laughs) (laughs) on my notes um and then i guess finally it's change yeah and this is something that because i like when you told me about artifact and that like it's a you know a journaling single player game where you create an artifact um I I didn't think about like and it's I guess it's something that we people just in general don't think about very much is how an item changes over time. Like we often talk about, you know, how characters and people change over time and how, you know, you know, a character changing over time can be a good thing if it's like a well-done redemption arc or it's a hero growing into their power or whatever it is, but the idea that a an object like an item can change over time and not just you know oh the hilt of my sword broke so i had to get a new one forged and it's the same blade with the same magic powers just bigger handle or whatever like no this is like you can change a trait about yourself but you can also change like something about your physical appearance has changed or even like this is the one thing that i i didn't use this but i'm 
curious if you did was a detail about your world that the artifact is in, like a name or a faction. Uh, and then there's a couple of questions for each artifact that are specific to that artifact that you can uh, that you can use whenever you're told to change something. Um, no, let's, that's a good question. So while I have had this artifact around, it hasn't really been doing much of my games yet. So I haven't you know, revisited my stuff. But like, I mean, yeah, I changed things about the world. It was a major part of it, right? Like a major part of the backstory of my world is magic dies basically for quite a while and then reappears. And, you know, what does that mean and how did that happen? Like that's that's a big part of what I kind of learned about my own setting from playing this game. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and all you know, physical traits, abilities. That that's the big thing for mine too is a power ramp up. Um, as it was used for greater and different and more terrible and more wondrous things, it became more powerful, and so it became initially kind of an elemental item. It's become something that's still tied to that, but much more significant than what it was before. Mm -hmm. Because what I find interesting is looking back, um, because this change happens, uh, it's supposed to happen, like, I think twice an act. Like, uh, I'm just trying to scroll through this thing. So, like, you you choose a keeper, uh, you answer. Each keeper has two questions about, you know, how did you find them? How did you help this person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you choose, uh, there's a couple of tables that you choose from. And then I'm trying to remember where change happens. And like, I'm. Well, change, I think, uh, well, it's a concept. I don't think it's a specific, um, necessary, a specific part of the game structure. It's not uh, the change section. It's like, this happens what does it fall under what thing under that happens and that's how change happens yeah i just find it kind of interesting that uh the the uh change section yeah i can words the change section specifically mentions at various points you were asked to change something it's just and i think this is maybe part of how i got a little bit mixed up like with the keepers for example is that for the most part, like I would say like 95% of what's in the book is like straightforward and easy to understand. And then there's stuff like this that feels like, like maybe they needed an editor pass or something because like, yeah. it's, it says like at various points you were asked to change something. But then when you come to like act one and you're looking at the keepers, there's a summary of the process that you go through, but it doesn't say change something it says answer an artifact question which is one of the things in that can change yeah and that that is an an issue um i think a little bit right it's a bit of a writing issue change um you know it's a core concept but if they're gonna name it a core concept it would be great if they use that in the language of the game structure which they do leave out they they then are like an artifact question yeah um, yes, rather than just saying like change something about the artifact, it says answer an artifact question, and or or even answer an artifact question to change something about your artifact or something like that. Like something tying it together would be nice. I think especially in like uh, a reading comprehension uh, and simpli- simplicity thing, right? It simplifies it a little bit more 
uh, not even it would be adding words, but you know, it makes it a bit simpler because it links it directly to a thing we've already talked about and established. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, like one of the things they say is they like, you can also make a change whenever you feel it's appropriate, even if you're not explicitly prompted. And like, that's a good thing to put in, but it feels like, I guess, and this is very super nitpicky for a 32 page RPG, but just a little bit more clarity, I think would have helped. And I probably wouldn't, because all I did was answer artifact questions. And if it had said, uh, change something and I realized like, oh, I can change a trait or physical or something about the world or I can answer an artifact question. I might have done more than just answer artifact questions. Um, yeah, like it It might have been good because these um, I guess we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to the actual game structure. Um, but yeah, in the pages where you have artifact questions it would have been nice if there was just one that was change something for the positive or for the negative, because they're kind of a negative or positive option, though they're not quite as binary as that. Yeah. Um, before we get to structure, though, I want to talk, kind of go a bit earlier in the rules here, because there was one section that I really enjoyed uh, and really appreciated, which was the safety rules, or the yes. safety warning, rather. Um, because the thing about this game, um, it's designed to be played alone. Um, and sometimes playing things alone that are meant to be intentionally solitary and somewhat melancholy uh, cannot be the best thing for you at the time. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm glad I had that warning because it's it's not something that would have tripped me up. But like the fact that if you like in Act 2, if you choose to say that your artifact uh, goes a thousand years, a millennium in between keepers, you are supposed to sit with your eyes closed, either listening to some music that's four minutes long or just waiting for an alarm on your phone to go off. You're just sitting there thinking about meditating on what happened to this artifact in that thousand years. And if you're thinking about, like I was, an artifact that got lost down a chasm in the middle of a mountain and is stuck, you know, far below ground with no light or sound or heat or anything for a thousand years, I can see that not putting somebody in a great mind space. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I appreciate within the safety rules is they do actually have a link to a kind of a support option that the, uh, the creators think is a good place to check out. Yeah. Um, also, they 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 in it, which I didn't even really really realize till now. My brain must have just like went right whoosh past it when I was reading it the first couple of times. Um, is that they offer an alternative way to play? Yeah, and I think that this is something that we could uh, we if we had realized that this was in there, we could have done this before recording this episode. But maybe we'll leave it for another time, or we'll just do it and tell you about it on Twitter. But it's you can play it as a back and forth game yeah i i i really like this idea i like of me and you doing this because i think we could even uh record our halves separately and then send them to the other person and then talk about it after yeah yeah and, and basically i think the idea is that like so in each uh like you go through like there are some the way the game is set up is that there are some very natural points at which you stop and you, you could hand the game off the 
what you've created so far, you could hand that off to somebody. Um, well, I, I mean, speaking of this, why don't we talk about the structure? Sure. Um, yeah. Right. So uh, I think we've already mentioned this, but the game takes place over three acts and each act has a different set of keepers and time options that you can choose from. Yeah. So keepers, you choose a keeper, you kind of complete a series of steps to tell this story and explore how the item may change from the experience. There we go. Change again. Um, And you can use these steps to tell a full detailed story or keep things short with a brief outline of events. Oh, hey, what we were talking about earlier (laughs) with kind of a more point form approach, right? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, you start by picking one of your keeper, like one of the keeper options uh, in whatever act that you're in. Um, And you describe the keeper, you give them a name, a few details, and you describe how the keeper acquired you. Um, And what I found kind of interesting about this was that part of creating the artifact is that you can create an artifact um, that like, for example, mine was created by like a Royal Smith when told by the King in the middle of a apocalypse, end of the world war, um, that, uh, you know, the King needed a powerful weapon to fight off this horde of evil monsters. Um, and the Smith, you know, takes a year, he creates this weapon and just in time for this final battle, and then after the final battle, the king is like, well, life kind of sucks because of everything that happened during that war. I'm going to go take a breather and just like wanders off into the wilderness. And the first keeper is like a person that he he gives the weapon to after like seeing them perform in a tournament, basically. Um, and so like the idea that like the person who created your weapon might not be your, your first keeper, um, I think is uh, an interesting wrinkle. Um, I also did that. <laughs> really? Yeah, I did. Uh, so for my thing, it was more like the initial creator is a big kind of, uh, they're not really deities in my setting, but it's kind of like the next closest thing. Right. Um, created it, and then somebody promptly stole it. <laughs> uh, and that's where changelings come from. <laughs> um, because reasons, I guess. Yeah. Um, and... But- uh, one of the things I'm curious about is each of the keepers, they have a, I guess the best way to put it is like a title. Like the first one for act one is a folk hero. Um, yeah. And then it has a description about, about them. And for folk hero, it's, they are wholesome, helpful, and a little naive. And then it's got, each keeper has two questions. Usually like, uh, where's this person from or what is their family like? And like, what's some event that you helped with in while you were with this keeper. Um, and my question is, did you take the uh, descriptor into account when you were like creating your, your keepers? Cause oh, like I, the archetype that's listed. Well, cause I used like, I used a folk hero, but I completely ignored the wholesome, helpful and a little naive part. Oh yeah. If it, if that didn't suit what I was already thinking as I got to it, then I changed it or ignored it. <laughs> Uh, which is, I think, the best way to play this game, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like every other tabletop role-playing game is that, like, if you want to, just ignore a bit if you don't like it. 
Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Digression. <laughs> a brief digression. I'm going to talk about TikTok because I'm that guy now. Um, I I got onto D&D TikTok, which is uh, fun and weird, and I haven't run into anybody terrible on it yet, which is nice. <laughs> um, but someone was talking about how uh, you'll notice in D&D 5e, um, metallic dragons can shapeshift into people if they want to, but chromatic dragons can't. And the response to that is, this is wrong. And I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but this this just reminded me of that. It's like, yeah, it doesn't matter how uh, the rules maybe of how a creature works or how this one mechanic is supposed to work. If you don't like it, you can change it. Yeah. And I, I just to further your digression just a little bit more, then we'll get back to Artifact. The idea that something like uh, an ancient red dragon couldn't shapeshift feels bizarre. It is an incorrect idea. <laughs> the couldn't part might not, might never come up. But can it? Yes. <laughs> can now. Can in any of my games. Assume that's a possibility. <laughs> yeah. Um, um yeah. But back, back to the structure, uh, the next bit you do after answering two questions is choosing some sort of memorable event or deed that kind of defined the item's time with the keeper. Yeah, and the thing that I liked about this was that at the the end of the book, the last four pages are, they call them tables, they are really just a list of, uh, of questions. And so like... Uh, for for when you're going through the acts and uh, you're supposed to think of a memorable deed or event, it, it, these are basically a bunch of prompts. You don't have to use them, but like the idea is that like if you and the keeper achieved something great or heroic, you choose a prompt from the victories and valor table. Uh, but if you uh, if you were slighted or misused and your keeper was not the greatest, then you choose from neglect and mischief. Um, and I, I do have to say that the names that the author chose for all of these little bits and pieces, like Keeper and Victories in Valor, they are very, and I think this is part of the reason why this works as such a short book, is that all of these words that they choose are so evocative that it kind of kickstarts the process of like, oh, okay, like something valorous that happened while my artifact was out in the world. Yeah, it's, I mean, that that's the thing about this book is that the, the language um, and not the, you know, not the text or the prose, but the language used does a lot of heavy lifting and it does it really well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting back to kind of an earlier point we were making about change, and how we were like, oh, I wish kind of it was mentioned. Yeah, it's it's in Victories and Valor and Mischief and uh, Neglect. Um, they they are very quickly choose an option from below, answer questions, and change something. So, yeah. And, and redirects th- you back to page five where the change thing is listed. So yeah. it was there. We, yeah. we, we were incorrect earlier. <laughs> and... I I will say that like I I think a bunch of the problems that I've run into and that we are discovering are reading comprehension problems on my part are probably due to the fact that I was kind of rushing to do this because I left it to the absolute last day because I did this this morning and we are recording now. Yeah. I I will also cop to the listeners that that is not entirely Sean's fault. We forgot to schedule something for this episode and this was a thing we we had been meaning to do for a while 
um, but hadn't gotten around to because, uh, you know, it requires multiple hours to sit and play. And I had already done it, but, you know, if Sean hadn't, you know, you, <laughs> if you don't have time to sit alone for three hours and write a thing, then you don't have time to do it, right? Yeah, which is one of the things that the book does mention is that um, I can't remember where exactly, but it, they basically say, like, if you think that it's going to take too long, like split it up into multiple sessions, like do like each act is two parts. Like you do a keeper and then time and then you stop and you put it down and you come back tomorrow and you do your second keeper for act two and then you do the time part and then you put it down. So you do it like, or you can just do each act as a single session. So you can do it in a single session or three sessions or six or however many as it takes for you to comfortably get through this game. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I think in future when I do this, I will probably be splitting up the acts and be like, I'm going to do one act and go and, you know, make dinner or watch a show and then come back because I have a hard time sitting still for this long. And I, you know, in later years, I have not learned how I made it through schooling. <laughs> <laughs> um I just realized where it talks about taking those breaks and it is literally on page seven in the section called breaks. Um, <laughs> yep. Um, anyway, um, but anyways, uh, we've talked about keepers. So the next part of each, there's, act- there's a, there's a bit more that we're missing actually oh. under the resolving a keeper. Ah. Uh, that is the point where you may answer one of your artifact questions. These are questions listed on your artifact. Uh, this is what I think you were saying, Sean was a lot of what you did in this game. Yeah, and I th- like this is, I guess, one of the reasons why I need to remember because I do this whenever I get a new book, like when I got New Monera or when I picked up D and D or whenever I pick up a new rule book, I sit it down, I sit down with it, and I read it cover to cover, and I usually do that two or three times before I even think about running a game because I want to make sure that I have you know ingested everything, and with Artifact. I didn't take that time. I just, I read through maybe the first couple of pages and then I dove in. And so that is probably where a lot of my misunderstandings have come from is that just, I didn't do my usual thing of read through the whole thing. Yeah. I I, know what I'm going to cop to when I was playing it. And this had been the second time I was playing through it, uh, but it had been a while. I definitely got through, I think midway through the first act. And then I was like, Oh, I missed a step. <laughs> and I, there's some of them I missed multiple times and had to go back and add in when I was like, oh, I need a descriptor for my keeper, I guess. That's a thing I need. Yeah. And like I had a, because I, I completely messed up because I like, I, I did the, like the choosing from the, the valor and victories in valor. I actually only used the victories in valor whenever I was prompted to. Um, but uh, yeah, like I didn't, realize that like okay you do the victories in valor and then you do artifact questions like i guess yeah something about it just i guess it's partially because the the book because it's so short you do have to jump around a little bit so like yeah when you're looking at the resolving a keeper bit it doesn't say anything about change for step three but when you go to page 29 or 30 and you're looking at victories in valor right there it says change something about your artifact so I, I don't know what they could have done to make this more clear. I think it is really just on my part reading comprehension. Yeah, it, you know, it is it's a problem with the order of the book because it's in order of uh instructions or like intro, 
kind of theme instructions and how to play then artifacts then keepers then something else than victories and valors then time and rust or whatever the other ones are called like it's uh it does require a lot of flipping back and forth um and i was playing it with like printed out pieces of paper um and even i had a lot of trouble with that I, I think if this was in, because I was using just a PDF copy, if I had printed pages, I might have been able to better follow along because being able to have the tables just over here and then, you know, other pieces of rules over on my left and then stuff in front of me probably would have made things a bit easier to, to follow yeah. along. But we are losing. This is not that important. Like, it's a good <laughs> thing to know for, for people like, because it'll, if you know that, it'll potentially improve your playing experience later. Yeah. Um, but what I what I will say is I do think this game would uh, benefit from even just a a web page where it clicks kind of through. Yeah, and so, I think it could be very simple, and I would be willing to back that Kickstarter, <laughs> <laughs> or even just like as another like a, a two dollar project uh, product on on itch. Just like yeah. here is the exact steps you take for each act. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyways, after you do all the keeper stuff, and I don't think we're missing. Oh, the, la- the last part of yeah. the keeper is uh, how does the keeper end their time with you? Like, where do they lose it? Do they relinquish it? Where does that happen? How does that happen? Um, yeah. And this is the one that I, I think this is the part of like telling the story of the keeper and the artifact that I think I enjoyed the most um, simply because like, Two of my three keepers, because again, I only did three instead of the six that you're supposed to do. Two of my three keepers uh, died of old age. And for like, and I was, what I found kind of interesting was that the first one, it was um, like the artifact didn't expect it. He didn't realize that people getting old means they're going to die, that they're going to, he's not going to get to talk to them anymore or anything like this. And for the 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 last keeper, my third keeper, he knew it was coming, and it was a much more sad experience that we'll talk about later on. Because I want to go into that part a little bit more later. But absolutely, uh, but that is like those are the steps for creating a keeper. You start by, you know, creating this person out of out of thin air, and then you answer some questions. Uh, you choose like one memorable event, something big that kind of defines your time with that keeper uh you answer an artifact question and then how did the the keeper lose or relinquish you the thing i really like about lose and relinquish is you can do so many things with it because it is very non-specific it is yeah like you know uh in the first game i played where i was it was actually like a one-on-one game where somebody was acting kind of as the narrator for me or the prompter for me which is honestly a great way to play this game but also, like, uh, I think as we talked about in an episode where we talked about one-on-one games, it was uh, very intimate, which you m- might not always be a comfortable experience, um, even if, like, nothing even resembling anything that might be inappropriate comes up. It's just can be very intense to talk one-on-one about the emotions of this thing you've created. Yeah, and we'll get to emotions because I've got a story. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, the um, next... But yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah, please. Thank you. Uh, resolving arrest. Yeah. Uh, this 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 is pretty straightforward. You figure out how much time you t- you spend between keepers. Yeah. Um, and then you uh, you know, add 
explore, or you can, you may choose to explore a change in the world using shifts in currents or a change in your item using dust and rust, which are very similar to uh, mischief and misuse. Yeah, misuse and or neglect and mischief and victories and valor. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, it, it's two more tables: one dealing with stuff that happens in the world, one that deals with what happens to you, the artifact, as you sit in a tomb for a decade. <laughs> um, and the thing that I found interesting was that the time periods are different in each act. So in the first act. It goes from no time at all all the way up to a decade, and so you you uh, so for no time at all you just move on to the next keeper, nothing happens. But for the other periods, which are a day, a week, a month, a year, and a decade, you rest with your eyes closed, thinking about silence and the solitude of abandonment for anywhere from five seconds to a full minute. Um, and I will say that, like, I think this was maybe my favorite part of the entire game of the entire experience for me. Um, Partially because there's like in my head, it plays out as like a scene from a movie where like, you know, a time somebody's time traveling and rather than just jumping from now to the future, it does the like sped up thing of like, you see like the sun and then the moon and like, and then it speeds up and you just see like mountains rising and falling and all that stuff. But like keeping it, like small and focused and kind of intimate and personal about like what is your artifact doing during this time period and like you know like a day or a week or a month like you're you're thinking about like a week you think about for 10 seconds it's not very long but like when you get up to in the later acts like if you choose a millennium or an era and you're sitting there you know with your eyes closed preferably in the dark i just pulled my bandana down over my eyes so i couldn't see and just thinking about what happens to your artifact was kind of a powerful experience for me. I wish I could have that type of experience with it. Like, I want to play a game like this and get emotionally affected by that kind of thing, but I just get impatient and twitchy and I need to do something. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I am very jealous that you were able to experience the game that way because I, I was not. Yeah, it's uh, I mean... I don't want to start trying to give advice on like meditation, but I think there are resources that help folks uh, who have trouble sitting still do meditation. And I think part of it is just like, accept that you can't sit still. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah. Anyways. So once you've done act one, you've done, you've gone through it twice. You've created two keepers and you've rested for, for, maybe no time in between your first your first and second and your second and third keeper or maybe you've been around for two decades at this point but then you move on to uh the second act and one of the things that i find kind of interesting is that they talk about like the uh each act has a subtitle i guess is the best way to put it um in act one it's newly forged and in act two it's a time of glory and uh the the other thing is that the keepers like everything about this is like very deliberate like in act one newly forged the keepers that are suggested are they kind of fit in with like first to third level D characters you know like you've got a folk hero a young noble a revolutionary leader like these people who are not big players necessarily they are like they found you 
or bought you or whatever, however the, you know, your first and second keep, keepers found you, but they are not, you know, changing the destinies of nations. Like you are maybe helping somebody defend a small village. Um, but then when you move up to a time of glory, like the very first champion, the very first keeper is a righteous champion. Like suddenly the, the stakes have grown a bit. Mm-hmm. Or an all conquering warlord, which I definitely used. <laughs> um, then like keep the second set of keepers, the second act uh, passes largely the same. Like, yeah. There are different options, but it's still similar. Yeah. The times are also longer. That, that's a, the thing that we've kind of mentioned, but not outright said. Yeah. And ever after every, or in every act, the time options get longer. Yeah. So, so yeah, like in, in the first act, it's from no time at all up to a decade. Whereas in uh, act two, the smallest amount of time that you can rest is a month. And the longest is a millennium, a thousand years. Yeah. And then, so I find number three, the ruination. Um, interesting, because it is supposed to be um, like a personal kind of apocalypse for the item, right? Mm-hmm. Some of them are not necessarily that way flavor-wise, like the pair of treasure seekers. You know, not necessarily, but like you've got a doomsday cult, an archivist collector, which I know doesn't seem that way at first, but that also applies a lot of history or an, like, you know, something being around long enough that it is a piece of lost history is a lot of time and background at this point. You've got all of this behind you. Yeah. You got a doomsday cult? <laughs> Um, and you have a foolhardy warrior. And I love um, the, the, is... the descriptor for the foolhardy war- warriors. They are optimistic, energetic, and hopelessly outmatched. Yeah. The, the kind of implication, and not, not, again, that you have to follow it, is that the foolhardy warrior is doomed. Yeah. And, yeah, and again, like when it came to Act 3, like I chose an archivist collector, but I ignored the description part because... I think for all of the keepers, I ignored the description and I just used the title because as soon as I read the title, I had somebody in my head. I had a picture of somebody that I wanted to use. Um, I I bet you anything that the the writers of this game, because there's the one writer, but there's also some editors and folks who work on it. Um, I bet that that's what they want. Like, I bet that that's what they would almost prefer. I think those descriptions are there as like a helpful kind of thing and kind of to set the tone. Or like you just you you've got writer's block and you can't figure out like okay an archivist collector oh what kind of person is that like having that there uh, can be useful because there's been plenty of times where uh, didn't happen to me while I was playing this game this time but maybe the next time you know I'll get to Act Two and I'll look at the keepers and none of them will evoke anything in my head and I'll just use one of the descriptions that they've got yeah or you'll just come up with someone else who you're like. I want this to be what happens next. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, I think um, I would really like it if there was supplementary stuff with more keeper options. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And like you can, I know we can write the, you can write them on your own and stuff like that, but I uh, don't do well with that kind of thing. I would rather a list of options that I can choose from. Oh yeah, well, it, it, it's kind of like the same thing with like. There's like I would say in my experience, looking through like drive-through RPGs, and specifically at like D and D products, is that the majority of them seem to just be somebody sat down and created a table of a thousand different drinks for an inn, or 
you know, a thousand different store names for a city. Like there are people who have like to do this kind of thing. They just sit down and they pump out tables for people to use. And if somebody hasn't created more keepers and artifact options for artifact, I would be pretty surprised. Yes. Anyhow, we kind of already talked about the time list for the ruination. It goes up to an epoch, which is six minutes of sitting and listening to that music. The music, by the way, is very nice. Yes. And one of the things that I found interesting um, was when listening to the the decade one, um, I had like as I was like listening to this this one minute piece of music and thinking about this halberd, you know, lost in the bones of a mountain, I was picturing in my head like time jumping, like, you know, um, it happens in like TV shows and movies sometimes where like, you know, you'll be, you know, character will go to sleep in a cave and then it'll cut to the same scene, but it's day now. And like, I was doing that kind of thing in my head. And like, just after I did that once the music uh, in the decade one had like a skip in it, like a record skip almost. And it felt like, okay, well, I've got the right idea about what I'm doing here, which is time skips. But uh yeah, I just thought found it pretty interesting. But you know, um, visualizing it is really cool. I'm gonna try that next time because I think a lot of me was just being like, I'm just waiting for the music to end. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, uh, we're nearly at the end of the structure. Let's get through this, and we can talk a bit more about our experiences with it. I, yeah. I really am looking forward to hear hearing about yours because right. it sounds like it really resonated with you quite deeply. Yeah, <laughs> we okay. will get to that. So yeah, after the the third act, um, uh, what what I find interesting is that if you feel you spent ten minutes at rest across, like this is the last thing on the last page of acts, is if you feel you've spent ten minutes at rest across the entire game, or if your story is ready to end, this keeper is your last. So uh, the idea that like the third act could just have one keeper if you feel that you've had enough time with your artifact is uh i think it's a good out for people who are just like i have already created five keepers i need to be done yeah a thing game designers should consider an out an out is always nice yeah they people don't need to use it but sometimes they might want to it's uh i can't remember what the term for it is but it's uh kind of related to video game design and how some games have like unpausable or unskippable cutscenes, and how that you know, that's fine when you're a teenager who has the entire evening to play a game. But if you're a parent and you've only got an hour and you've got to go make dinner, being able to pause a game is really important. And so for tabletop games, especially like solo journaling ones like this, having a, a thing that's just like, yeah, you can be done now if you really want to is a yeah. good touch. Uh, and this is something to consider because I know there are lots of people who will be like, Oh yeah, why why would I need that? I will just stop playing if I don't want to. Some people can't do that. <laughs> yeah, like myself, I got really into this and having something like that there kind of reminded me like, okay, if I'm getting too deep into this, I can just stop. Anyway, yeah. I want to read one of the lines in the final keeper cuz ending the game has three sections, the final keeper, converting items, which is kind of self-evident. It's like it's ideas for how you might convert an item into say D D or numenera or anything like that and then there's an epilogue 
But the final line of the final keeper, I think, especially if you've become really emotionally invested in your item, is heartbreaking. Having resolved your final keeper, the item is left broken beyond repair or abandoned in a cold, dark place forever. Wait, where is this? (laughs) It's ending the game on page 10 under the final keeper. Okay, you have a different version than I do then. Oh, maybe. Because the epilogue for me, that section, is uh, regardless of where you leave your game, it's worth taking some time to pause at the end of the game. Oh, this is before that. Uh, it's on that page. Oh, Final it's, Keeper, I see up yeah. above. Oh, wow. Okay, because I I skipped over that. And I'm glad I did because my artifact got a happy ending. <laughs> yeah. Well, happy-ish. Yeah. Well, that, like that's the thing about the game. Like we've kept on saying, right, is it, it has a specific tone in mind, but it also clearly works if you want to disregard the tone. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as uh, I, we we will put a link to the post that i wrote on my own website because i i took everything that i did for for this playthrough and i put it up as a a post on my blog and uh you can see that like i very obviously didn't play this game as written but i still came out with what i think is a nice little story emergent gameplay kind of yeah um so let's talk about the artifacts that we create because i'm pretty curious to hear about what you came up with okay uh first we'll talk about god did i just call it thorn um i can't remember it this is this was a while back uh near the start of the pandemic i had just gotten this game because i think i backed it on kickstarter my friend our friend kevin and past guest kevin wilson had also gotten it and had played it on his own and was like hey i'm like at the time he was running uh our like one-on-one rpgs as his podcast and he was like, hey, I want to kind of try this out and see if it would, might be a good alternate way for me to do this. Like, he was looking at a bunch of different games. So he ran me through Artifact, uh, basically prompting me and also kind of enforcing the we sit for three minutes and listen to music. <laughs> um, enforcing in big quotation marks. If I said I didn't want to do that, he would be like, okay, let's move on. Um <laughs> But I created this sword that had that eventually was named Thorn that kind of had this arc of being a weapon very much built for violence. And I think it was like a rapier, but it was very much built for violence and murder that by the time it got to the end of its thing had become kind of a heroic item in its own right. Um, so, you know, it started as some, you know, minor petty lord, um, you know, and, you know, and it's like the Lord's son, who's kind of a piece of shit, who's, you know, murders multiple people with it. Then eventually he gets put down and the person who puts him down takes it. And they're not much better. Um, but like part of Thorne's development was, uh, especially near the end, the sitting for a very long time before uh, an archivist eventually found him. And he got to, I say he, it, it or they really, uh, it eventually learned more about people and how the world had changed and what had happened and all of that stuff. It was really, it was a really interesting and affecting experience. I wish my memory was better. Cause again, this was like two years ago. <laughs> um, but like, I, again, I would really recommend trying to play the game that way sometime. Um, but also like it didn't get super emotionally intense for me because I am not a super emotionally intense person anymore. <laughs> A lot of the time um but it was very interesting and like a very uh it was a very cool experience cool um do you want to hear about mine 
Yes. <laughs> um, so I also went with weapon. Uh, I created a halberd, though. Um, basically, a short sword on the end of a big stick. Um, different than a spear for reasons that I am not entirely sure of. Um, it's more of a swinging than a stabbing. Right. Yes. That Actually, that makes sense. Spears have points and you can throw them. Halberds are like, you want to swing your sword, but you want to be further away when you do it. Uh, anyways. Um, yeah. So like I said earlier, mine was uh, commissioned by the king during a war. Um, and uh, the first life that the halberd took was the life of the queen that had been turned during the war, um, which kind of ruined the king. And uh, after the war ended, um, killing the queen ended the war. He basically just was kind of done with being a king and being in the kingdom and just disguised himself and rode out to the very edge of his kingdom and uh, saw a uh, found a small village that was just having like some festival days and had been completely passed by the war. And he ended up giving the halberd to a, uh, a young woman who had been trained by her grandfather who used to be in the Royal army. And uh, she kind of becomes like protector of the village. And um, yeah, she goes on a couple of quests. She goes, uh, the big event that happened was them going and finding uh, some magical water and plants to heal a bunch of people from a plague. Um, and uh, she gave him uh, the the halberd its first name, uh, which is something I came up with was Sedora, which is just an ancient word for salvation, which I turned into something like it, it ties into like the part that really moved me later on, but we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, she, uh, and like I mentioned before as well, she, uh, she just grows old and dies and the halberd is put in her tomb, which is basically just like a small chamber that was carved out of the cave and then left there. And then a decade later, halberd is stolen by a thief and uh, ends up in the hands of a, a warrior, a knight, um, who was a broken man because a few years ago a rampaging creature had like killed his entire village and he had failed to stop it before it disappeared into the wild. And uh, so for this one, so the first character I chose was the folk hero. This one was the monster hunter and he's basically a monster, monster hunter out of like out for vengeance. Um, and there's the story of the, the halberd and this, this knight um ends with the knight finally killing the monster that had killed his family. But um, he did it by throwing the halberd and killing the creature, causing it to fall into a chasm in the middle of a mountain. Um, and like the last thing that the, the halberd did was it spoke to him and said, your quest is over, go and live your life and remember your family with joy for they are avenged. So like it was this nice moment, of like, well, we are being parted. There's nothing we can do about it now. I'm going to like try and give you some peace as I fall into this mountain. Um, and it then spent like a millennium underground. And I did a kind of uh, like, this is kind of where the time skip thing really happened for me was like, it didn't just spend that entire millennium at the bottom of this chasm doing nothing. Like there was an earthquake that caused a flood of water that, flushed it further underground and it found like have you played dragon age inquisition yes have you played the deal all the dlc uh, i think so 
Because the, uh, the, there's DLC where they go down into a mine and they keep going down and down and down and they find that uh, the world is supported on the back of these like titans that are the source of lyrium because it's like their blood leaching into the ground. Oh, yes. Yeah, I do remember this. Yeah. So like I kind of allude to like it gets, you know, lost deep underground and finds strange civilizations and lands of mists and le- light and heat um and you know it had adventures that it won't speak of because the you know the, there are secrets that are meant to be kept and it's not going to betray them uh, but it ends up back on the surface again after a thousand years uh being found by an archaeologist basically uh and it spends the next couple of decades uh in a case in this archaeologist's office um but it becomes a friend to this archaeologist. Um, like they grow closer. It's much more comfortable talking and being con- like conversing with people uh, at this point. And the thing that I did was I tied the archaeologist to the king because she was researching that period of history. And her specific focus was that king and his kingdom. And... Uh, the the way that it ended was that well one of the questions was like what's a place that you would like to visit again at some point and i did that as a question that the uh archaeologist posed to the weapon and it said that the uh one of the last things it saw as the king was taking it out of the kingdom was the the capital this city this this big city with a big castle in the middle of it and you know weird magical fantasy bridges that are big and huge and long and uh it just remembers like what the king said to it as as he set out and tried to set things right by like taking this weapon and finding somebody worthy enough to to wield it and uh, it said that like that's where i would like to go and visit there again sometime and the uh the last section is basically like the archaeologist taking the halberd to that place they found where it was and like the the kingdom is long gone there's now just uh, like where the castle was is now where the university where this archaeologist is and the archaeologist takes them to the place where you know the the halberd had talked about and uh shows the halberd uh places the halberd in a small like a short stone plinth that the archaeologist and her students had found um and the archaeologist is like do you do you recognize this and the halberd's like no i don't i don't get it what what are you trying to tell me and the archaeologist just like traces some of the scroll work on the blade of the weapon and the and the halberd realizes that this plinth was made by the the smith that made him um it was like the last thing the king commissioned him to do before he left. And it was, it's got um, like, there's a story uh, that the archeologist found about the king and what happened after he left the halberd with the first keeper, like about how he came, like how he was changed. And on his journey out, he was a, a broken and despondent man. And on the way back, he was much more hopeful for the future. And uh, the, archaeologist tells the halberd that your name was you you were given a name uh saudo by your first keeper and she said that it meant salvation and 
she was partially right. And she tells the halberd the story of like, she found the book that had this poem where that word is used and how the context is, uh, you know, an, uh, somebody at the end of a dying civilization uh, creates something and basically, you know, the, t the trope of flinging a light into the future, like they create this thing and send their son off to escape the, the end of this, this kingdom, uh, hoping that, you know, their, uh, this thing that they've made is going to survive and it make the world better somehow. And, uh, the archaeologist reveals that, uh, a, a potential, alternate way to translate it is a beacon of hope in the darkness and there's like a little bit more and like uh the the uh halberd is like it's left in this plinth that kind of functions like the sword in the stone like once it's placed in it can't be removed until somebody who really needs it comes along and the last little bit that i wrote was that next keeper you know, coming to the halberd to beg it to allow it to be used because there's something evil coming. And it talks to him and it says, well, like, well, you can try and pull me out of here. Many have tried, but we'll see what happens. And he manages to pull it out and he asks, like, well, what's your name? And the halberd says, well, I was once known by Sidora. Uh, I was told it meant salvation, but I like the alternate translation better, which is beacon. And so that's what it goes by now. And that's the last word is just beacon. And the something about like this story that I created as I was going through the game and I was writing this last part, this epilogue, this, this final goodbye between the archaeologist and the, uh, this halberd. And she's telling him this story about like, and she tells him about like, I found so many stories that match things that you've told me, but in so many of these stories, you're not a weapon. You're something else. You're a piece of clothing. You're an amulet. You're a spirit. You're a voice on the wind. Because in all of these stories, you're not a weapon. You are like a source of hope, of inspiration to so many people. Like you're, you're a beacon of light in the darkness. And just like the idea of like this weapon that had been created and spent you know, forever underground and makes it back up to the the sun and the stars and like finding out that the people that it had left behind that meant so much to it went on to live, you know, happier lives and that it can be a beacon of hope by sharing those stories to the people in the future because it's, it's an immortal object that's almost indestructible. It's going to be around for a long time. So it can you know, in times of trouble, when it's needed as a weapon, it can still be these other things. And that was, I don't know, something about that just hit me really hard. And like, I was like, close to tears at one point writing all of this. That's amazing, Sean. <laughs> that sounds really good. That sounds a lot better uh, than mine. <laughs> um, man, you know, I think Kevin might have a recording of that first one I played. I should see if he does. <laughs> um I got a little bit emotional listening to you tell that story. So I'm just <laughs> going to take a, a beat. Um, and it, anyway, I, I guess it's uh. just like the, this kind of experience of being guided through a process of creating the story of something that comes into people's lives and changes their lives somehow, whether it's, you know, a good person 
accomplishing some great feat or, you know, a neutral person just, you know, getting out of a bind or an evil person finally enacting their evil plot by twisting this artifact of light and goodness or whatever. Um, And like following it through the ages and seeing the people that it touches is, I don't know, there's something about that kind of story to me that like, there's definitely an aspect of like melancholy. Like it is a sad story of, you know, if you read any stories about like that are from the viewpoint of something or someone that's immortal, like they're sad stories of like leaving loved ones behind as you, you know, stay the same age and your, your partner and your children and your grandchildren and so on and so forth are all going to die and you're going to leave them behind and, and how that affects people. Um, telling that story about something that sees things differently, but can still have some aspect of humanity to it. If you decide to write it that way. Um, Yeah, this was a, an interesting experience, powerful experience, and I'm definitely going to try it again, I think, but not right away. I need some time. (laughs) (laughs) You need some time to process. That's understandable. Um, I can't tell you much about the one I made before we did this episode two months ago or whatever it was. Um, because as I said, I'm using it in my campaign, but I did make an ornament this time. Um, and it was kind of to your point about a weapon kind of being a weapon, but also not, it was very interesting because the, the bracelet I made became a weapon (laughs) (laughs) almost immediately, uh, which I think has more to do about how I think about magic items, uh, than, uh, anything else about the game itself. (laughs) It's it's interesting because um, there are a bunch of different artifacts that uh, actually I think is is there ten or is there just eight? So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So there's nine, um, and like as the descriptions go, only two of them are really like outright weapons, and one of them is weapon, and the other one is staff. Because I mean the end of the day a staff that you can use to cast magical spells is still a staff that'll hurt if you get hit with it um yeah but the rest of them is like it's footwear an ornament like ornament being like a jewelry or trinkets or something like that you can make a, a musical instrument you can make a shield uh the tome i found kind of interesting um but the one that i almost went with and i chickened out was the deck like a collection of worn cards an Oracle or something stranger. And I think if I, the next time I do this, I am going to try and make, do the deck because the idea of something that like, you know, maybe it's something like the tarot deck and it can be used to tell the future, but it hates being used that way because the futures it tells are always so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, I realized earlier, I was like, I wish there were more keepers. Oh, right. That's that whole other thing, that PDF that you sent that I kind yeah, of... Yeah, there's, there's a table that you can get with, I think just with the game when you buy it, that is like a random generator table for keepers. Yeah. There, there's also, and we'll talk about those real quick. There's also this. Did you look at this at all? I took a quick look at it. Uh, for those who can't see Jesse right now, he's holding up a sheet that uh, the other sheet that comes. Does it come with Artifact? Well, it, I, I think it, it came with my copy, at least. It's uh, uh, it's called Bloodlines or Burrows and Bloodlines, which is uh, for, uh, from what I understand, it's for creating keepers that are animals. No. So 
Uh, I'll read the introduction real quick, because it's just a few sentences. When playing Artifact, you might choose the following prompt while resting between keepers. A colony of small creatures nest close to where you rest. You become obsessed with their daily routines and little politics, watching generations pass. Describe them. Do you see their downfall, or are you recovered by a keeper? So instead of simply describing the creatures and their changing society, you use this game to play out their history across generations while you wait. So you play a smaller game of artifact within a larger game of artifact. I and I I might do that next time because the idea yeah, like the idea of like again, if you like in Act Two or in Act Three where you can rest for a thousand years, you know, telling the story of the uh the colony of mice that were affected by your power in some way over 500 years. Um, that could be an interesting story to tell. Oh, for sure. Um, but anyways, I think it's probably time that we wrap up. Yeah, um, folks, we're nearly at an hour and a half. <laughs> we talked about this way more than I thought we would, which is great. I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you about this, Sean. Yeah, and it, it seems like it's one of the things that always surprises me about these shorter games is that like look when you look at the book the the pages of artifact like it is not jam-packed there is a lot of white space there are pages like you know title pages that are just you know like artifacts with a bunch of pictures on it um which can be useful if you're having trouble trying to think of what kind of artifact to make but uh like for an rpg or a, a, for this kind of experience, like it's such a well put together book that I think they really grokked the idea of like try to tell people how to do this with as few words as possible, which in my mind has led to like how evocative some of the terms that they chose are because something like, you know, using keeper instead of owner. And I actually addressed that in what I wrote, like, you know, why is it keeper and not owner or holder or anything like that and um you know the fact that you're resting in between keepers and all these other things really all comes together to make this solo journaling experience that is much more powerful than i thought it would be when you first told me about it yeah i mean i undersold it a little bit uh <laughs> and maybe a little bit on purpose um but like what i, I just like quickly sean can you imagine this in like kind of a, a smaller maybe hardcover book like just little nice little thin kind of hardcover i i would buy that yeah um i would buy this game again in that format this is this was meant to be a zine by the way as part of zine quest 2019 i think all right um zine quest is a thing on kickstarter where a bunch of tabletop rpg zines get put out some of them are dnd related some of them aren't their own games um we we have a bunch of them through that itch.io bundle. Like a bunch of those are in there. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, we were saying goodbye. Yes. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you should really check out the game, I think. Uh, again, you can find that at molehousepress.itch.io slash artifact. Um, check it out. Play it's the game. Artifact. If you're Googling for it, it's Artifact with an E. And it's all caps. Yep. Um, so yeah. So let's outro. We can do 
Thanks again for listening to our show. We are proud members of the Cave Goblin Podcast Network. Find us and other shows at cavegoblins.com. You can support us and our network by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cavegoblins or by joining our Discord server. You can also support us by leaving our reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you happen to listen to our show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, or you can find me at Jesse Boros, or you can find Sean at Sean P. Hagen. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. Our art is done by the wonderful, fantastical Haley Boros. See more of her work at HaleyBoros.com. And that is it for this episode. Hope to see you out there at the gaming table. Bye. Bye. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.